Hey, good morning, church. Thank you once again for tuning in to another live stream for Hope Assembly this morning. We're glad that you have joined us, whether it be on Facebook or on YouTube. We're just grateful that you're tuning in with us today. I do want to say right off the bat, we're in the middle of a snowpocalypse 2021. Uh, we've had a lot of ice storms here in Wilsonville. Trees are down all over the place. Lots of people are without power. We're praying for you. Um, but with that being said, I'm in my home and uh, neighbors have trees that are down. And so you might hear some chainsaws in the background. It just kind of is what it is. People are cleaning up their yards. And so if you hear the background noise, I apologize for that in advance. But there's really not much that I can do about that. Well, uh, today we're going to start a brand new series, Seven. We're going to talk about the seven statements over the next seven weeks, the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. And I do want to take a, a quick second here to, to really say how grateful I am uh, for the messages of the last couple of weeks. Christiana sharing about the goodness of God, um, one of our missionaries to Albania. She's just a beautiful um, humility to her um, viewpoints on God's goodness. Um, and then my, my good friend Nicole Farr, who shared last week about the goodness of God in difficult times. I really appreciated the vulnerability in that discussion. And um, though we didn't necessarily plan it this way, she she referenced uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed before he was led off, before he was arrested and led off. Um, and uh, it was a beautiful setup, really, um, to this new series that we're starting, the series called Seven, where we talk about um, the statements that Jesus made on the cross. Now, if you don't know, um, we're getting ready to launch into, by we, I mean just the, the, the world in general, is getting ready to launch into the season of Lent. And uh, it goes from this Wednesday, the 17th, to the Saturday before Easter, which would be this year is going to be um, April 3rd, um, which Easter is early this year, April 3rd. And so Lent is this sort of solemn season, the solemn observance from Ash Wednesday, which is this coming up Wednesday, leading up to Easter Sunday. And it's a time really for sort of deep reflection and preparation for the resurrection celebration. A lot of people will fast during Lent. Um, they will do certain devotionals, Lenten devotionals, to really sort of reflect deeply about um, this season leading up, preparing their hearts leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And so over the next seven weeks, as I said, over the next seven weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take seven weeks to talk about three hours, seven weeks to talk about three hours. Good Friday, the, the time that Jesus was on the cross on Good Friday was about three hours of time. And we're going to take the next seven weeks and talk about those three hours in particular, the seven statements of Jesus. Now, Jesus said this in Matthew 16. I'm going to use it sort of as our anchor uh, scripture, if you will, Matthew 16, 24. And we're going to use this through the entire series. Jesus said, if anyone wants to become my follower, now he's talking to his own disciples um, before he's crucified, before uh, obviously he's died and resurrected. Um, he says, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so we're going to we're going to use that phrase that Jesus that Jesus spoke to his disciples like if you want to be my follower here's what you got to do deny yourself and then he says something peculiar probably to them at the moment he says take up your cross and follow me our hindsight's 2020 right we look back and we go oh right take up the cross 
I imagine at the time the disciples were wrestling with what does he actually mean by take up our cross. Um, they're familiar, I'm sure, with Roman execution via crucifixion, but I'm not so sure that they were gathering completely what Jesus was saying to them. And actually, I would say, I'm not so sure that uh, we gather completely what Jesus is saying. And I'm not saying in the next seven weeks, I'm gonna answer all those questions um, that we might have about what does this actually mean, but maybe it will help us to look at the statements of Jesus on the cross to draw the connection to what he meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to be a follower, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so let's start by reading the story of the crucifixion. We're going to be in Luke chapter, uh, let's see, 23. And we'll start at verse 26. We're going to read a good amount of text here just to sort of set the precedent. And then we're going to talk about the first statement of Jesus. Here's what it says. Um, Luke 23, verse 26. As they led him, Jesus, away, they see Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country. They placed the cross on his back and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of people followed him, among them women who were mourning and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For this is certain. The days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore children, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if such things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Verse 32, Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with Jesus. So when they came to the place that is called the Skull, or Golgotha, and they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 34. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Then they threw dice to divide his clothes. The people also stood there watching, but the leaders ridiculed him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is Christ of God, his chosen one. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, One of the criminals who was hanging there railed at him, saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we rightly so, for we are getting what we deserve for what we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon because the sun's light failed. The temple curtain was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. Then all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, and when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all of those who knew Jesus stood at a distance, and the women who had followed him from Galilee saw these things. There's a good bit of text here to sort of set the context, if you will, of the seven statements of Jesus. Now, 
in Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't record all seven statements of Jesus. Matter of fact, none of the gospel accounts record all seven statements. So to get the seven statements of Jesus on the cross, we really have to draw from every single gospel account um, and, and piece them together in sort of a chronological way to hear the things that Jesus was saying while he was on the cross. Now, before we go to the first statement, let's talk briefly about the crucifixion itself. Uh, the cross and crucifixion was Rome's preferred method of capital punishment. Really important to understand that this was not new. Um, this wasn't the first time someone was crucified. This was a very familiar scene for the people that were around um, because this was the way that Rome preferred um, to inflict capital punishment upon people that they saw worthy of capital punishment. And, and crucifixion, this capital punishment, was designed to inflict the greatest amount of pain and the greatest amount of shame imaginable. So, so when they concocted this idea of crucifying or the crucifixion as a capital punishment, the whole intent behind it was how much pain can we inflict upon the person being crucified and how much shame can we place upon this person who is being crucified and the reason why they did that this this sort of shame and pain was unimaginable like it was so hard to 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 recognize it was intended to be a deterrent for anyone and everyone who saw someone being crucified and, and, and so, so they would say, essentially, as they crucified people publicly in this great pain and this great shame, they'd say, if you turn on us, this too could be you, right? And then it was common for them to put signs over the heads of those who were being crucified that listed the crimes for which they were being punished. And in Jesus's case, they said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, they took Jesus up to the place of the skull. Your text may say place of the skull. It may say Golgotha, same thing, Calvary, all the same idea. And when they took him up and he carried his cross, or Simon of Cyrene took, carried his cross up to the top of Golgotha, they nailed him to the cross. And this isn't like nails that we would use to hang up pictures in our home. We're talking seven-inch spikes that they uh, used to hang him to the cross through his wrists, and through his feet, he was hung to this cross. Remember, this is after the 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails. This is after the crown of thorns that was beaten into his brow with one to two inch uh, thorns on the crown of thorns. This is after they spat on him, plucked out his beard, punched him, mocked him, um, continually throw a robe on him and tear the robe off. Like all of these sort of things that have been happening all the way up to this point. Now they nail him to the cross. They, they raise the cross up into the sky. And um, generally speaking, what would happen on the cross is that most people didn't die from uh, blood loss. Most people did not die from um, the piercings or the pain uh, when you died on the cross from uh, being crucified, it was from asphyxiation. Literally, you became asphyxiated. You were suffocating because you couldn't hold yourself up. And I don't want to get too gruesome here, but if you go look it up, they, they literally became as asphyxiated, which made the fact that Jesus had seven statements from the cross 
pretty powerful and miraculous for him to be able to continue to speak throughout the duration of his crucifixion, being that he was slowly being asphyxiated as he hung on the cross. Now, uh, Russell Bradley Jones, who wrote this beautiful, very old book um, uh, called Gold from Golgotha, said this about crucifixion. He said, crucifixion was the invention of the depraved minds designed to make death as painful as possible. The invention of depraved or depraved minds, however you want to say that, designed to make death as painful as possible. And Brian Zond, um, in his book, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, said this about the cross. The cross is a cataclysmic collision of violence and forgiveness. The violence part of the cross is entirely human. The forgiveness part of the cross is entirely divine. God's nature is revealed in love, not in violence. The Roman cross was an instrument of imperial violence that Jesus transformed into a symbol of divine love. Now, when we talk about take up your cross and follow me, we talk about the crucifixion and the things that Jesus said from the cross. When Jesus called his disciples in Matthew 16 to take up their cross, or when Jesus is calling us to take up our cross, um, or to live the quote-unquote crucified life. I don't think that he intended that we, uh, like him or others, are to be publicly executed or publicly shamed even. Rather, that we are to learn how to live what is called a cruciform life, a life that takes on the shape of the cross, one who is dying to themselves, one who is taking up their cross. Now, this cruciform life was demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. And so therefore, the statements of Jesus, these miraculous statements that he made on the cross, these seven statements, can help us live out the cruciform life. Not only do they have power in the fact that Jesus is saying them, that Jesus is declaring them, but they also provide for us an example of how to lean into, live out in a lot of ways, this cruciform life, this take up your cross and follow me type life. Now, what I want to talk about is the first statement of Jesus from the cross. And that first statement of Jesus from the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Something is happening around um, all of these people involved in the crucifixion that Jesus believes uh, fully that they don't even fully understand. They don't fully recognize what it is that they are participating in. Whether that be all the Jews who are screaming, crucify him, crucify him. They said, look, he's innocent. And they declared his blood be on us and our children. Uh, whether it be um, the, the Roman soldiers who were beating him, whether it be the ones who nailed him to the cross, whether it be the ones who walked by and mocked him, the criminals on the cross who mocked him, no matter who it is, Jesus says they know not what they do. They don't fully comprehend. They are in the grasp of something. Something is motivating them to do this that they don't fully comprehend. So what I want to talk about here is this idea of forgiveness and footnotes, just briefly. And the first statement of Jesus or the first statement that Jesus makes is a prayer. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a, it's a prayer. And it's not a prayer for himself in the midst of this horrific crisis that he is facing. And, and honestly, I don't know that you or me um, or anybody that we've known has faced this sort of crisis that Jesus himself is facing. So he's praying this prayer. The first statement of Jesus is this prayer, but not a prayer for himself, not a prayer for his own circumstances, not a prayer for his own agony, for his own pain, for the crisis that he is facing in this moment. No, it is a prayer that he is praying for his executioners, a prayer that he is praying for his enemies. Think about that. Jesus the first thing that he says while upon the cross is he prays a prayer of forgiveness for the very ones who put him on that cross. We can learn a lot from that. We can actually just sit with that idea and that idea alone and wrestle with it until the end of age because I don't know about you, but I have had many moments in my life where God has called me to and I have needed to forgive other people and it has never nearly been, not even close to this level of crisis that Jesus is in and yet I wrestle with forgiving others. I wrestle with a willingness to release the offense maybe that I might be carrying. I know there's people who say, oh, I've never get offended. I'll, I've never, I always forgive. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But let's talk a little bit more about what that looks like. Now, the scripture says that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That word Jesus said, or that phrase, it carries that, that said is, is, is an imperfect verb in the Greek. And what does that mean? This imperfect verb means this, that it's, in, it's indicating a continuous action, okay? Meaning that it is possible, um, better yet, that it is plausible, that a better reading of this text is, and Jesus kept on saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Jesus kept on saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That, that at every moment of this, this, um, this road, this Passion Week even, this, this Via Dolorosa, the, the road to Calvary, at every single moment of this, that Jesus was continually praying over and over again, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As I said earlier, when the, when the crowds were crying, crucify him, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. And when the, when the centurions were, were uh, whipping him with a cat of nine tails, just laying his back open, 39 lashes across his back, Father, with every single lash, perhaps, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As they punched him, as they plucked his beard, as they spat on him, as they mocked him, as they nailed him to the cross, as he, as he hung there and people going by jeered at him and again mocked him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What we see in this statement of Jesus is that God's mercy is infinitely available 
that there is no wickedness that is too great, that God is willing to release forgiveness. Jesus is showing us the heart of God and he is willing to release forgiveness without prerequisite. No one was saying, uh, no one was repenting as they were mocking or as they were beating or spitting or plucking his beard. No one was repenting in the moment. There was not a prerequisite for Jesus to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because Jesus is showing us that God's mercy is infinitely available. Now, there's something I found interesting about this verse. And I'll say, I've taught on this verse many, many years. I read it all the time. Every year, for sure, if not more. There's something interesting. I, I just, as I was studying this week, I, I noticed, um, and it sort of stood out to me a little bit more than before. And that is this, verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Verse 34 comes with a footnote. In, in, your, in your version of, of your Bible, it'll, it'll either have a footnote to it, or it might even just be in brackets with a footnote to it. And the reason why is because a footnote is basically there's some ancillary um, piece of information. There's more information about this text that's necessary that's not included in the verse itself. So you have to go down to your margins, down to the bottom of the page, wherever that might be, and sort of figure out what is this other information. But verse 34 comes with a footnote. And the reason why it comes with a footnote, if you go and read, is that verse 34 is omitted in many significant early texts. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's not there. Verse 34, Father forgive them for they know not what they do, is not found in most of the early texts. And the question is, why? Why is it not found in the early text? Is it not found in the early text because it was just too unbelievable? that Jesus would be praying this sort of prayer in the midst of this kind of crisis? Is it not in the text because it didn't actually happen? Jesus didn't actually say it. None of the other gospel writers actually record verse 34 here. They don't record Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So is it just Luke who is uh, remembering something that wasn't there? Well, what is going on with this text? Why is it not there? Why is it um, now showed up even though it wasn't in the early text? Did, did the scribes add the text later? And I think Brian Zahn's um, quote here from, again, the book Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God maybe gives us a little bit of an insight into to why it's been included in the scripture. And here's, here's what it says. This quote says this, When Jesus prayed on the cross for the forgiveness of his executioners, he was not acting contrary to the nature of God. He was revealing the nature of God as forgiving love. The cross is not what God does. The cross is who God is. So verse 34 in most of the early text is omitted. It has a footnote that tells us that it was omitted. But here's what the footnote also says. It says, even those who regard the verse as inauthentic, literarily speaking, right? So just based off the, the, uh, the literature of the text, even those who regard the verse as inauthentic, literarily, 
often consider it to be authentic historically. And what that means is this, it checks out. What they're saying is that, look, early text doesn't have this verse of scripture in it. But when we look at this being added in or, or the text that does have this particular father, forgive them for they know not they do. This checks out historically. This is something that Jesus would definitely have said. This is something that Jesus would have definitely done. They're saying, though uh, literally uh, or uh, in, in the literature of the scripture, maybe, um, maybe there's some question here. But when it comes to historically speaking about Jesus, there is no question. This is the action. This is the light. This would be congruent with the prophet prophecies about Jesus, congruent with the teachings of Jesus, and congruent with the lifestyle of Jesus. And so they put this footnote in to say, listen, even though the early text didn't necessarily have it, or all of them didn't necessarily agree on this, we can say for sure, historically speaking, this is the way of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Prophetically speaking, Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy in Isaiah that says this. He made, Jesus made intercession for his transgressors, for his ex executioners, for the ones who put him on the cross. Jesus is interceding, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's congruent with the teachings of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5. Let me, let me turn there real quick. I want to read it to you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven. So that you may be like your father in heaven. Since he causes the sun to rise on evil and good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The context here is that being perfect is the way in which we love our enemies we pray for those who persecute. So they're saying that this is congruent with the teaching of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I love that they put this footnote in to tell us like, though it may not be in the early text, we're here to declare to you clearly that this is the way of Jesus. This is the cruciform life. The willingness to pray for your enemies, the willingness to demonstrate what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And to be a part of the kingdom of God, Jesus taught us that we should pray for our enemies, even in the midst of crisis. And that got me thinking, I'm going to leave you with this thought. It got me thinking, what would be my forgiveness footnote. What would be your forgiveness footnote? If they were to write that we said something and then they would footnote it down at the bottom, what would the footnote say? Like, he didn't actually say this. Or he said it, but he didn't mean it, right? Or um, they said he said it, but I was there and he definitely did not say it. Like, it's the, the apology that's not an apology. You've all heard those before, right? I'm sorry, but um, those aren't real apologies. So what would be our forgiveness footnote or how um, would our forgiveness 
footnote read? Would it read like Jesus' forgiveness footnote? They said, you know, early transcripts don't necessarily say this, but we find the statement, this, this willingness to forgive, to be congruent with not only the things that he taught, but the way that he lived his life. Because see, I think this is what it means to live the cruciform life, that we can learn from Jesus on the cross that the life of Jesus was a life of radical forgiveness. And even if he didn't necessarily say it out loud, they're saying, though he didn't say it, he said it. Um, that it is, it, is, it is there, it is present in the teachings of his life. It is present in the way that he lived his life, that Jesus was a, 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 a man God, revealing God the Father in incredible forgiveness, in rich mercy. And so what would our forgiveness footnote read? Maybe this is why Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer when he says, when you pray, you know, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I think that that term, as we forgive, as we forgive, is sort of that cruciform process. It's that cruciform practice, you could even say. That... Probably you, like me, are not able, like in the moment of the crisis, to pray, forgive them, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. But we enter into a process of learning how to be forgiving people. When people do things to us that are contrary, that are detrimental to our health, detrimental to our um, hearts, people hurt people regularly. In the moment, we struggle sometimes. Maybe we're getting better. I, I, I hope that I'm getting better at this. But in the moment, we struggle to be forgiving. In the moment, we want vengeance. Um, but the cruciform life teaches us that there's a process where we learn how to practice forgiveness. And I think that's what Jesus was teaching us all along the way. As he said and kept saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May we be a people who radically forgive, who lean into the process of forgiveness so that we too can pray, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's my prayer for you and me today. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful your willingness to go to the cross, to endure the cross for the joy that was set before you, the salvation of mankind, the forgiveness of our sins, the reconciliation of man back to God. We're so grateful for the cross. What an ugly device of human cruelty that has been turned into this beautiful icon of redemption and salvation and grace and mercy. Help us to embody the cruciform life that you embodied, Jesus, to be a people of deep forgiveness to embrace the process of forgiving and continuing to forgive. 70 times 7 even, may we be a forgiving people. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Before you go, let me pray this blessing over you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may abound in hope. God bless you. We'll see you next week.